Crack, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. Hello to our dear listeners, it's Molly here. Thanks, as always, for keeping track with us. We don't have a real catch-up for this episode, as it's a special compilation we've been putting together for a few months, so we will just let it roll, and you'll hear our normal updates from us in next week's episode. We hope everyone is staying as safe and healthy as possible as we continue to weather this difficult pandemic. I know it's been really hard to absorb the new disappointments and sadnesses that arise every day and every week. We have received some positive feedback on another note um, in result of our t-shirt contest last week. So we ordered a few more of our cool Keeping Track t-shirts. Shout out, thank you to Katie Burgess for this design. She designed the graphic on the front. And you can order them on our website, keepingtrack.com. That's keeping-track.com. All the proceeds will actually go toward relieving an area affected by the pandemic, with this month's focus being our local food banks uh, in Providence, Scottsdale, and the Bay Area. Thank you so much for your contribution so far, and with that, we will roll ahead to episode 16. Hey, welcome back to Keeping Track. We have a special episode today. We are going to talk about women in NCAA coaching. Um, I have my co-host, Roisin, here. It's just the two of us for this episode. (laughs) Hi, guys. Hey, Ro. Hey, Molly. You were excited Uh, about doing this episode for the last few months, Molly. You've worked really hard on it. Yeah. Yeah. We've been collecting interviews with a bunch of different um, female coaches in the NCAA Division I track and cross-country world. Um, and this is something I wanted to do kind of since we started the podcast. I just, it's one of those, um, things where you, coaching is a leadership position and it seems like, um, I'll tell you guys some of the stats in the, in a minute, but it is one of those things that you don't see an equal number of women in and there are as many women running as men, maybe even more in some areas. So you do wonder why at the coaching level, those numbers start to tip um, the other way. So yeah, it's something we've been looking at for a while. We wanted to showcase some role models, some great female coaches out there who are, who are getting the job done and just um, let yeah. them be shown and let them talk about some of the struggles and barriers and rewards and um, just how they're becoming good at what they're doing and who their mentors were and um yeah, what the future looks like for women in coaching. Yeah, yeah. And if we kind of have a little look at some of the statistics you're talking about, Molly, um, which ones are which ones are you referring to just for our viewers? Yeah, well, well, Lindsay Krauss um, of The New York Times recently did a great piece about sort of the same topic, women in coaching across all sports in the NCAA. And there are some some really similar stats. Um, The University of Minnesota did a study uh, quite a few years ago now, I think this is from 2014, but it said, as NCAA coaching has become a more lucrative professional position, we've actually seen a decline in the number of female coaches across the sport. So that's mm-hmm. since 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, and women were 43% of 
NCAA women's team head coaches and only 23% of head coaches across all sports. And if you narrow that down to track and cross country programs, only 12 to 18% of head coaches were females as of 2017. Okay. So that's a pretty like yeah. pretty startling statistic. Yeah. Um, and what you what, what I found most interesting about that is before Title IX, um, there's research that shows that 90% of women's teams were coached by women. So actually, Title IX um, has saw a steady decline, um, and we are you know curious why that is, what's driving that, and why are women staying away from coaching when it is a great opportunity for women, it's a great career path, and you know there are so many females in sport, like you said, Molly. So yeah, we're really curious about why are the statistics so low and what's going on there. Right. Yes, and I think um, it ties into the, some of the conversations we were having um, earlier in the season about sort of the um, duty it is for a coach to take care of the whole athlete. Um, we see this in the Mary Kane story and just how we there are some skewed perspectives in coaching that, you know, brought a lot of things to light. And this is one of the stats that came to light, like maybe more women in coaching um, – would kind of change the perspective around issues dealing with female athletes. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's definitely something tied into the sort of like the current conversation of women's sports. Um, some of the reasons that have come up for the lack of numbers in women's uh, head coaches would be potential lack of role models um, and maybe a system bias whereby the career is hard to do while having a family and, um, of course, we know a lot of that falls on the the woman of a family as mm-hmm. far as child care, um, yep. child production. <laughs> Can't get around that one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And coaching is one of those. It's a leadership role, but it's also, role you mentioned a vocation where mm-hmm. um, you can put more time than what's on the, the paper is nine to five. It's, it's more time than that in coaching. Yeah. And what is what I really found interesting with some of the interviews we did, um, how fulfilling the job is. So, yeah, it's very demanding time wise. And um, but the women who are in coaching find it tremendously fulfilling. And I think, you know, we should highlight that, you know, what are the positives behind coaching and why is it something that w- more women should consider? Um, so we really want to present that today. And we have a great, great lineup of coaches. Um, I'll just start listing off a few. We have uh, Amy Rudolph, um, who is at Iowa State. All right, mm-hmm. yeah, I keep mix, mixing those up. Um, Amy was two or three time Olympian. I should know this. <laughs> I used to train with her. Um, but she was a legend of the sport and eventually found coaching um, and is thriving now in, the, in a new career. Um, Julie Cully is also an Olympian. Um, she's at Georgetown, and she's the director of the program. So she's the she's got a very um, high position there. Yeah. Um, Sarah Slattery is also a former U.S. top international international athlete, right, Molly? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's at what university again? She is at Grand Canyon University um, in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, and. Who else have we got there? We've got um, Diljeet Taylor, who is at BYU and whose women just finished um, second at the NCAA Cross Country Championships. Mm -hmm. So she's definitely doing something right over there. 
Um, and we have April Thomas of Mississippi State, who's this associate head coach, and she does she coaches throws, um, and she was a thrower herself. Yeah, and she's been majorly successful there. Mm-hmm. She as... swept the po- she swept the podium in men's javelin at outdoor last year. That's so. so cool, <laughs> a javu they're calling yep. it, right? <laughs> so yeah, we have an array of coaches and different personalities, uh, different life experiences. Not all of them were the Olympians, and we actually asked them that question: Do they think they have to be an Olympic athlete in order to be a good coach? And they all actually re- really refuted that, right, Molly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not something we're going to play a clip on today, but they all kind of thought, you know, there's stuff I learned as an athlete for sure that I can connect with the athletes I coach. But coaching is a very different <laughs> profession. And yeah, they get to kind of still live under the umbrella of sports and running um, and track and field. But it's a very different side of it at this point. So, yeah. Yeah, so we liked um, the variety they had and how they got their start in coaching. Um, We are going to play for you um, what Amy Rudolph and April Thomas, um, how they got started in their career. Um, It wasn't always super direct, and so it's good to see that there's a lot of different ways uh, to get into doing this profession. Here we have April Thomas of Mississippi State. Well, when I first got started, I was <clears throat> still at the University of Tennessee finishing up um, my degree. I was doing my el- eligibility, but the whole time I was there, um, I worked with um, Knoxville Track Club. And then I was able to work at one of the local high schools um, um, there, too. And while I was doing that, you know, kind of just fell in love with, hey, you know, something on the other side, opposite side of what I was doing as being an athlete. So... Just kind of fell in love, you know, working with the younger kids and stuff like kind of teaching them the throwing events uh, while I was doing that. And then um, as I was doing that, my coach, the head coach at the time, J.J. Clark, was like, you know, what do you want to do um, when you're done? I was like, well, you know, I, I would like to coach. But, you know, if I don't get a coaching job straight out, you know, straight out, I mean, I was cool just staying there, you know, going to grad school and hoping to help out with the track team. But, you know, he's, he's like, hey, if you want to coach, you know, go coach. So, you know, he kind of showed me the paths to, to take to, you know, sign up for um, or apply, shall I say, for different jobs um, that was available. So that's basically what I did. You know, any job that was available on any level, I just went in and applied for. And literally <clears throat> two weeks before I you know, graduated, you know, I really hadn't heard much from a few schools. You know, I had one or two schools call and ask questions, but, you know, they, it just didn't pan out. And two weeks before graduation in the summer, Mississippi State called and was like, hey, are, are you still looking for a, new, a job? I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> so they uh, they brought me in on an interview. And when I was on my interview, they offered me the job. And uh, fortunately, I've been here ever since. So um, it was difficult at, front, at first, first couple of years, shall I say, because you're going straight from being an athlete straight into coaching. Um, I know one of the, the biggest thing I had to adjust, adjust to was the fact that, hey, I'm now coaching kids that's my age, one in which was older. <laughs> so that was like kind of just, and so you try to get the respect of your of your athletes at the same time, you know, you know, these kids are your age. So he was like, how do you get, the kid, you know, these kids to respect you? And uh, so it was a struggle early on, but, you know, just realizing I had to keep the professional versus, you know, hey, I'm not your friend, I'm your coach. You know, it's separating the two. 
Um, so once they realized, like, you know, hey, you know, coach, you can have fun with us, but that's still coach. Um, we got along, <coughs> excuse me, very well. So that was good. But as far as um, learning the jab, it's funny because that's the only thing I did throw in college was the javelin. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, okay, if I want to be good at my job, obviously I have to, you know, immerse myself into everything throwing events. So, you know, just, you know, adding my knowledge, I know from the, the other events, it wouldn't have been as quite difficult as jab since I had no knowledge of it. So I basically just, you know, reading books, you know, reaching out to um, old coaches that have been in the business um, for a while, just reaching out to them, asking that I come to shadow them, you know, talk to them about jab. Um, watching old videos and stuff like that. I mean, most of which was probably on VHS. Um, so I just sit down watching those, you know, videos and talk to those different coaches, whether it's here in the States or even out of States. I reached out a couple of professional coaches um, in Europe as well and just kind of, you know, pick their brains a little bit and kind of from each aspect, whether it's video or talk to coaches, put it together and kind of made it my own. Because, you know, it's, it's different styles as far as coaching, the jabs and stuff like that. But the ultimate goal is, you know, having good techniques and get your kids to throw far. So it's just something that I just worked at, you know, and just read and just kind of made it makeshift it into my own. Um, and even with that, even through the, the years I've had javelin throwers in the early, early on process, I'm, I might have messed up a few. I mean, it just, you know, it's just a process of elimination. But you kind of, as you, I'm learning, to, you know, coach them, I'm also learning from the athletes as well. So that was April Thomas talking about her beginnings in the coaching world. Uh, She mentioned uh, her coach, J.J. Clark, helping her uh, foray into coaching. And now we have um, Amy Rudolph. She's coaching at Iowa State, talking about her transition from being an Olympic-level professional athlete into a coach. And it's, it's a little less direct, so I found hers interesting. So here's Amy. Um, well, I think I've pretty much dedicated my life to the sport of running. I started running when I was six, and um, it's always just been something that I've really enjoyed and um, just have constantly been learning about and was fortunate enough to have a, a, a fun and successful high school career to, to get a scholarship to Providence College, um, where I then found success and was able to then kind of live every athlete's dream and go on and do it professionally for um, 13 years. So it's just been a natural progression um, in the sport for me. And I think I always knew I wanted to somehow stay connected to the sport and be a positive influence and um, just, you know, stay involved some some way or another. And the way it sort of worked out with um, how I ended up here, I, I definitely took a hiatus from the sport a little bit and kind of took a back seat. Mark got into coaching first and we sort of left the Providence area and went to um, Auburn, Alabama, where he coached for eight years. And then um, I was a volunteer coach there, but worked other jobs and um, just kind of was kind of waiting for the opportunity to sort of get back into it. And so um, the job at Drake afforded us that, um, that opportunity. And then a year in there, this this opened up here at Iowa State, and it um, just kind of seemed like it was the right thing to do, and um, I haven't really looked back from it there. So, brilliant, brilliant. So you didn't go like st- straight from like the, the week you uh, retired from running into coaching the next day, or anything like that. 
No, no, I definitely had um, a hiatus, like I said, where I just sort of volunteered with Mark's team, but um, kind of did um, some other things on the side. Uh, still involved with athletics. Um, I was a personal trainer. I worked at a running store. Um, I worked in the healthcare field. So I was never that far from uh, the sport and mm-hmm. obviously always followed it and, um, you know, was a volunteer coach within within the college system. But um, volunteering and sort of being the coach are some different things. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of something that just, you know, like you said, happened right after, um, you know, hung up the spikes. It was, um, definitely a process. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, Mark getting the job he got and, mm-hmm. um, just kind of letting him get started. So. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So you kind of saw Mark doing it and thinking, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that too. Like you tried a few different things and then it got, clearer that you wanted to get into coaching or did you always kind of know yeah I always knew I wanted to um it's just the the opportunity for him to go to Auburn there was not an opportunity for me to coach there so he retired he retired a year before I did so it was um I kind of um did some road racing the last year of my um career where um you know he kind of got started first and that's just kind of how it it naturally happened for for us and and so um but I think you know, looking back on it, um, it just afforded me to kind of learn a lot and realize this is really what I, what I wanted to do. And um, when I got the opportunity, like, just kind of went all in then. <laughs> so I think another um, important point uh, that we realized talking to these five coaches is how um thankful they were for their mentors and role models in their own coaching careers and athletic lives. And a lot of these women can think back to either a role model they had um, in the in the coaching sense or just someone that they had in their life kind of like encouraging them to take on coaching or opening it as an avenue um, for them after their, their sports career or kind of introducing them and giving them the first steps towards towards this opportunity. So here is Julie Cully. Um, I had asked her about her coaching role models, and she has been influenced by Frank Gagliano, Matt Centrowitz Sr., and her college coach, Roberta. You know, it, it, I think initially it was, um, it was hard for me to figure out what my style was, because I think when you're a young coach, you want to replicate something that is exactly what you saw in another coach, and uh, you know, I think I was pulling from Gags here and from Centro there and my college coach, Roberta Mantis at Rutgers. Uh, she was the founding member of the uh, Villanova women's track and field program. So she was a pioneer in the sport. Um, I had a fabulous high school coach, um, Don Roberts at North Hunterdon in New Jersey. And so I, I think when I first started, I was like, okay, uh, you know, I liked what coach did here and I liked what Gags did there. Um, but ultimately, um, I've really found that coaching is really just about your unique perspective on, on how to work with, you know, the human being that you're coaching. Um, and so it, it took me a little bit to figure that out. Um, but it's really made a difference just being uniquely me and figuring out um, what kind of style is me and what style kind of fits, you know, our, our group that we have here now. So- mentioned your college coach at Rutgers, um, 
Roberta, how important do you think it was to have her as a female coaching role model? Like whether you knew you were going to coach or not in the future, do you think that was important to have in your subconscious and just to see what that looks like? Absolutely. And I think I value it so much more than I have in the past. Um, as a college athlete, like as a, as a prospect, I, I did not want to go to Rutgers. I, my, you know, I was, it was my state university. My parents made me talk to her. Um, and once I met her and connected with her, she was just somebody that I wanted to be around and to learn from. Um, she was a pioneer, like I said, and she, um, she was very independent. She taught independence, um, very well. And she really mentored me. She wanted me to be a leader in the program. Um, and so I really had the benefit of her kind of taking me under her wing when I was, you know, even just right after my freshman year at college. Um, I stepped up into a leadership role in the program right away. Um, so having her, knowing what a lot of her experiences were, what she fought for um, in order to be the best athlete that she could be, um, she tells the story of, you know, there was no program at, at Villanova, so she literally climbed over the fence like day after day at practice, and Jumbo Elliott would just kick her off the track, kick her off the track, kick her off the track, until finally he was like, forget it. And she just started hopping on the back of the men's workout and then eventually invited other women that she knew with that at the university that were interested in running to come out to, to practices. So having someone like that, you know, when I first started out uh, trying to find a coach and to coach me post-collegiately, like I got a lot of door slams and a lot of no's. And I definitely referenced uh, her experiences in those moments of like, you got to find a way. And, and that was really influential for me. And now, and now we're going to hear from Diljeet Taylor, the BYU coach, um, who talks about her mentors and her journey into coaching and how, you know, oftentimes we need people outside of ourselves to see our own pot our potential and help us believe in ourselves as, you know, different opportunities that may exist that we would never even could have considered without these people implanting those seeds. So here we go. So I originally wanted to be a school teacher. I, I thought that that would be a good profession where I could impact young kids when they're still really impressionable. I had a great teacher growing up in fifth grade, Mrs. Sparks, and I, I still remember to this day she would constantly tell the class that we could be anything we wanted to be, and it really helped me believe that. Eventually, after the entirety of the fifth grade, I left fifth grade thinking, I can be whatever I want. And, and that was in fifth grade at the age of 10. Yeah. And so I, I felt like that I wanted a profession or a career that I could make an impact on people's lives. After running in college, I had the opportunity to run for the Nike farm team that was training in Palo Alto with coach Frank Gagliano. We call him Gags. Uh, and I just saw the impact that he was making on, on myself and, and on my teammates and not just in running, but in life. And I thought, wow, that, that's a really cool thing to be able to do. And how rewarding of a career path is that? But I still wasn't really sure that that would be something I'd want to do. But then we started talking about workouts. And, and one day he just pulled me aside after practice and asked, like, have you ever considered going into coaching? And I think ever since that moment, um, I, that's kind of what opened my eyes to that idea. Yeah, and he could, he could see something in you that, because I don't think he probably didn't say that to everybody, right? Yeah, no, I think he saw a passion in me, and he also saw the kind of teammate I was and probably the leadership that I displayed and also my personality, and, and I think uh, 
he he put that idea. He planted it in my head, and I, I'm still he's still one of my greatest mentors. Uh, after all of these years, I attribute all of my success and and a lot of how I am as a coach and how I care it, to to his to his leadership and his style. And now we're going to hear from Sarah Slattery, the cross country coach at Grand Canyon University, on how um, her role models have shaped her career. along the way I had an amazing high school coach um, Sabrina Robinson who ran in college and post collegiately and um, was always a very good influence on me and helped guide me um, show me big some of the big meets and put me in competitive opportunities and trained me really well and um, and then I went to the University of Colorado and was coached under Mark Wetmore who um, is probably one of the um, most legendary college coaches um, in the NCAA, and he was an amazing um, coach to work, to run for, and um, I was a part of his first national championship team um, my freshman year, and then we won another one my senior year. Um, but I had a lot of start, like, had a lot of little things that came up along the way when I was there, and he was always calm and guided me and helped me um, take the steps necessary to be successful. Um, I'm sure he was one of the role models you have as a coach, like you mentioned earlier. Do you think it matters that you didn't have, um, I guess your high school coach was a woman, right? Yeah. Like, how much do you think that was important to see a female in that leadership role, or do you think you would have found your way here anyway just because of, you know, the empowering nature of sports and being in it at that level? I think it was huge. Like, she was, like, as a high school coach, she coached, she went on, like, she only coached, I think, for six or eight years, and Mm -hmm. she had... Um, two NCAA champions and she had like another like seven athletes go on to run um, collegiately and so she um, she was a really good influence but she had her she brought her daughters to practice every day Um, she worked really hard she held us accountable and she was very like tough Um, she ran most of my workouts with me all through high school she was running as a master and so I just saw this as that's normal, like, yeah. and um, and at first, like, I when I first started getting into coaching, I felt a little bit guilty, like, bringing my kids, taking my kids along, but um, I just like they're getting, like, they're part of the family. Like, we have a small team, mm-hmm. and she made us feel like that. Like, we knew her kids. I know her daughters really well, and it, it's just, you're all part of this family. And so, like, I'm lucky at GCU. It's a smaller team. Like. We're very close. We're like a combined program, and um, my kids are a part of the team. <laughs> and so, um, having her influence made um, a big because uh, mm-hmm. definitely Mark wasn't is not that same. You know, right. he doesn't have that dynamic at all. But she was a huge um, role model for me. One of the other questions you wanted to ask these women was um, knowing that the stats are so low for women coaching as head coaches in the track and field world uh, the stat I saw was 12 to 18 percent of track and field head coaches are women in the sport um what do they think that attributes what attributes to that stat uh we have Amy Rudolph here um she's coaching at Iowa State and here's her opinion on why the numbers are low 
Um, Amy's got a unique perspective. She was a professional runner. She does not currently have kids right now, and she is in her first three years of coaching. So she's um, got some ideas on this. I think I think we're I think we're seeing that. I think there's mm-hmm. definitely a mm-hmm. huge shift happening um, within the last few years, and I think it's just going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing you know more women come into the sport. I think. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is, um, you know, women are, are the people in the relationship that have the children and the women, you know, they're the moms also at home. And I think, you know, being um, um, being a coach and being a head coach or director, um, you know, it is definitely another level of commitment, another mm-hmm. um uh, it, it's definitely way more involved than just being a coach. Um, my job and uh, coach Smith's job are two totally different things. I think um, I read an article recently, uh, Julie Colley kind of expressed that, how she, mm-hmm. um, when she became director, she it, it was another kind of level for her um, with a commitment with her family as well. So I think it's just, I think you're seeing a lot of it, women, it's hard because it really is a full-time job. It's mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it is, you're really on 24 seven. I mean, beyond the full-time well, job then sounds like more like a vocation. Yeah. 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 And it's not, I, I'm not saying that in a, in a negative way at all. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, it's kind of a lifestyle, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, for some people it's, it's hard to find that balance between, um, you know, your personal life and relationships and, and trying to, do the best you can. And unfortunately in this, um, in this profession, you know, it is results driven. You do kind mm-hmm. of have to produce as well. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's not for everybody. Some people would like just to have, you know, the, the five day a week job nine to five, and then you kind of get to shut off on the weekends and so forth. And with this, you, you don't get to do this. So I think there's, mm-hmm. um, I think it's harder for women who are, you know, the ones who kind of run, you know, take care of everything at home and so forth. But mm-hmm. you, if you have, mm-hmm. if you have the support group, um, if you have that support behind you and you have someone who's saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to, um, help you do this and achieve this. And, and you have that, like you're seeing more women kind of take the, the, um, opportunities when they arise mm-hmm. and, they, and, and they're doing really well at it. Um, you know, and I think it's just a, it's, I think more of a mental shift than anything. And, um, and when you, you know, I see, um, you know, someone like Julie, she has two children, but she's still doing a great job at her job. And um, Coach Hop at Minnesota, she's got two children, but she's, you know, um, has a great program as well. Like you're seeing women do that. Jill G. Taylor, she just, um, you know, almost won a national title. Uh, and, you know, she's, you know, someone who put in her time and is and, and it is where she is now. So I think you're seeing that. It's just, um, you know, when these jobs do come open now, I think you're seeing more women apply for them and actually um, be qualified for them. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, but I I honestly do think you're going to see a huge shift in that. And, um, and it, it, it's just kind of like, it's like I said, it's just taking time to kind of catch up to the direction of sports. That was great to hear from Amy Rudolph. And now we will check in with Julie Cully talking about her own internal and external obstacles um, that she felt were she had to overcome um, in order to become the director of the program and at Georgetown University, which is a really highly ranked coaching position. Mm-hmm. What I think I first applied on this job um, 
you know, it felt in the beginning like, you know, women talk a lot about imposter syndrome um, when you're, you feel like sometimes you've been given a job because you are a female. Um, and I, I think there was a little bit of that feeling when I first started um, that Georgetown was like, you know, making a statement about, you know, wanting this program to be led in a different direction. And so I felt a little bit of that myself. And I'm not sure if that was just me or if there was external feeling of that as well. Um, but, you know, after some time, it quickly evolved into, you know, knowing that that for this time period that I am the right person for this position and to lead the team in a different direction. Um, and so that's it, it, I think that just takes time, you know, for, for women to feel comfortable in their own skin. Um, you know, there's all those statistics about, you know, the way the women, like the way a female enters a, a uh, interview versus the way a male enters a interview and how, you know, a male might feel like they've already got the job and a, a female might feel like they're, they'd be lucky if they got the job, you know? And so there's a lot of those feelings, um, but a lot of them are self-created as well. So it's just a matter of starting to own it over time. And, um, you know, I don't know that I felt too much resistance. Um, I think it was definitely a change. Um, and, but I think change is good. And I think that, you know, once we kind of got our rhythm and we, we took our, our kind of version of what Georgetown Trek and Field was going to look like into the direction that we wanted to as a staff, um, I think it's, it's been really well received. And thankfully, I have some amazing staff members, too, who have families and young families um, who kind of understand, you know, what it's like. And their, you know, significant others also work. Um, and so there's a, a lot of, like, understanding um, in terms of, you know, if I'm going to bring my son on a trip, um, that they're like, yeah, you know, it's it's hard. You're gone on weekends. Like, bring your son. You know, we'll, we'll be there to support you. So that's a really, really cool thing. And I think if you can find a staff um, that really understands it and embraces it and understands the challenge of it, then that makes all the difference in the world. As you just heard from Judy Cully Bear, she talks about some of the internal obstacles such as imposter syndrome that many women can relate to. And um, Judy also was asked about some other systematic barriers that women are facing that, that could be keeping the statistics of low percentage of women in coaching solo. And here's what Julie had to say about that. Yeah, gosh, there's a lot of questions there. Um, no, and that's great. And I, I love um, that stat. I mean, I hate that stat, but it's, it's so reflective of, I guess, how a lot of us feel, um, that there's, there's very few of us that are moving from those assistant positions up into leadership roles. And I think that Personally, I really feel that the NCAA needs to like take that stat and do something about it because the landscape for women in track and field and cross country is completely different than it is any other sport. There's no sport that's in season from August to June. And that alone creates an enormous amount of, of barriers for a family. If you think about a women's basketball uh, program who begins their competitive season in really November and then finishes their competitive season in February and March, that it's an intense few months of travel, but then there's a, a huge period of rest and just practices and obviously recruiting and things like that. But for a track and field coach, we go from end of August 
to the middle of June. And if there's Olympic trials and your team is good and you have individuals that may take you to the end of June into early July. Um, and then you're trying to squeeze your recruiting period into those like, you know, six or seven weeks of maybe doing home visits, um, of really kind of intensely traveling again. Um, so I calculated, I had, I have two, two boys. Um, I have a three-year-old and a 15-month-old. So my 15-month-old was born at the beginning of August last year. And in, in his first year of life, I, I traveled over 35 times. And that's an obscene number of times for me to be away from him. Um, and I, I hope that that doesn't sound like, oh, my gosh, I'm a bad mom or something like that. Because I, I really make sure that I intensely spend time with him when I'm, when I'm with him and when I'm home. Um, and the only way that I'm able to do that is because I have a husband that wants to win more than I do. Um, he is as focused on Georgetown being successful as, as anyone in, in our staff and, and in our team. Um, he's like our number one fan. And to have a significant other that believes so strongly in our mission together is incredible. And I, I, I know people say this, but I literally could not do the job without him. You know, I, I just got back today from a fundraising event in New York City last night. We had an alumni event for our team on Sunday that we were, you know, gone for five or six hours. You know, Thursday and a Friday of last week was the regional championships. I leave tomorrow for Indianapolis, but national championships, like, it's intense. There's a lot going on at any given time uh, besides just the regular demands of, of a normal day. Um, so I think that the challenge really is to, to call on the NCAA to try to support our young coaches and, and our coaches just generally speaking. Um, I think there's more that they can do. I think there's more services that they can provide or even um, mandate universities to provide to our female coaches, um, you know, for, for female coaches to have the ability to, to have a family inside of their time rising through the ranks is, is really hard. And it's hard when you have to pay for your significant, significant other and your children to, to travel out of pocket, to be with you. Um, you know, things like that just are, are really tough. Um, you know, breastfeeding for months and months and months while you're on the road. I mean, the, the war stories that a lot of us talk to each other about on the side of just what it takes to like, continue to nurture your child while you're nurturing, you know, in our case, 75 student athletes is, is a lot. Um, it, it takes a village. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there's more that the NCAA really can do to help women coaches. Um, they need to not just shell out staff. They need to be a little bit more creative because our sport is completely different. And so you'll notice that um, Julie mentioned in that piece, the support of her husband uh, then that that's a really important part of her support network in kind of putting the amount of time into coaching that's required to get to that high level. Um, and that's something that we noticed a few of the other women mentioned, and that's kind of how they balance um, family as well. Um, you know, they, their husband is really involved in the sport at a high level and kind of understood what it takes um, as far as the time commitment and as far as picking up the pieces for her so that she can go to work. And we heard this also from Sarah Slattery. Just, I think, um, I've been really lucky, like, 
um, to have Steve in my life. Like, I think there's a lot of rough roads along the way for me. Like, I had a lot of injuries, and there's times where I didn't think I could do it, but he always, like, believed in me and put mm-hmm. me in good situations, and, um, tr- like, we're very different people, but he always believed, like, I could do more than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. And so I think having someone to support you like that is like not everyone has that Mm -hmm. and um and even today as a coach like having that support is is like I wouldn't be able to be in coaching if I if I didn't have that support so um yeah I'm just like we've been married um 15 years now and we got married very young but I think um we have more fun and we love each other more today than we did like the first year we started dating. So I'm really lucky to have that. And I always feel like I have, he has my back and I'll always have his back. Uh, you can hear a common thread between what Sarah, Julie, and um, you'll hear now from Dilji say um, about managing parenting duties while both parents work full-time jobs and um, coaching being one that as we said before, is more like a vocation and also a leadership role. And so like the CEO of a company, you just end up, you know, having to spend quite a lot of time and um, effort on that. Yeah. And you hear from Jill Jeet on how she successfully manages it. And I like how she kind of keeps it real about, you know, what really works for her and that very relatable feeling of, okay, should I be doing, could I be doing more? Um, and yeah it's great to hear from her and she's been very successful at it and I appreciate her sharing today yeah I liked how she used the term work-life uh compromise rather than work-life balance and so let's hear Dilji on juggling family I think the second part is it's a very difficult career path for for women because you're juggling multiple roles and that's and that's parenting is is hard and so while you're a coach I think that that you see the attrition rate raise in women will get into coaching for a couple years and and we we need to do a better job we need to do a better job to show that it can be done and I I hope I'm doing that I think that's the only way that you have to see her to be her and so I think if if people see more women in coaching that that are also able to juggle a family life uh, and, and really not, it's not really a work-life balance. It's, it's more of a work-life compromise. Um, but if, if women see women doing that successfully, I think it will help because the need is there. And especially with the stuff that's out in the media right now, um, I, I think that it, it's, it, there's a need for, for women to, to choose this profession. But we have to make sure that, that we expose the great things about it and how we can make it work. And so I think that the, the, the low percentages are just based on because that's kind of how things just happened. And yeah, it's like the status quo and it just hasn't really like, is that what you mean? Well, yeah. And I think, I think that when, when the men took over these director roles and head coaching roles, you, you know, you'll, you'll see some assistant coaches that, that will start in the profession, but then they don't make it past 28, 29, 30, because they get married and, and they often feel like they have to choose between having a family or, you know, having their career. And, and I don't think that's just in our profession. I think women have to make that decision 
across all all professions. And so uh, I, I had to do the same for myself. And you kind of have to navigate a way that it works for, for yourself and your family. Yeah. And on that end, can you tell us, like, how many kids you have? Or yeah, I have two boys. They're eight and ten. And uh, we also have my niece living with us who is 17 or will be turning 17. So um, three kids in the house right now. And, and it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. <laughs> Would you say it's like the hardest part of your job is to balance like motherhood with the demands of your job? Um, yes, I've, I feel like I'm constantly trying to find ways to make myself feel like I'm doing enough depending on the time of season and and I just I've realized that I can do two things really well and so in season I focus on being a coach and a mom and out of season I'll be a mom and a wife and um and just when I try to balance all three sometimes and I am all three but I just yeah. for me that that makes it a little bit easier and I just, you know, there is always going to be some guilt that's tied with it, but I, I'm a better mom because I'm a coach. I'm a better coach mm. because I'm a mom. And I try to use those two to really strengthen either role. Um, and now we have Sarah back on to talk about how she started her coaching career and um, right this, around the same time as she started to expand her family and she had, had her second child um, and we hear how she made it work. But for me, I was very lucky when I, you have to find positions where I, the head coach, when he called me after I'd had my daughter, she was four months old. And, um, Tom said to me, you know, I really want you. I want a woman, um, in this position, but I want a woman that's qualified and I'm not going to find very many that like, um, have the background or, and he's like, I know you. And actually at the time I was still train like I had plans to train um I'd qualified for the Olympic marathon trials and um I'd planned to run on the track that season so he was hiring me not only as a mom a new mom um but also as an athlete and then I was going to coach on top of it so it was it was a gamble on his part but he's like look we won't like we'll make it work like you don't have to be in the office every day um, obviously I want you to do a good job and there's expectations of that, but like, we'll make it work if you can, um, you can do things from home. And, and to this day, he's still supported me in that because Callie's still in preschool. And mm -hmm. so I'm in the office like two to three days a week. And there's a lot of coaching positions that, that, that wouldn't fly, you know, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to handle, like be able to, um, continue as a head coach doing those things. And, um, obviously prior, priority first is practice. I'm there every day with the kids. Um, my kids have access to me, like to talk to me. Um, they can call me, text me, email me during certain hours, <laughs> but He's the boundaries. I'm there, yeah, <laughs> but I'm there for them. And then, um, I just, I, I told myself I wouldn't sacrifice that time that I wanted with my kids, like when they're in this young age. So that was great to hear from Sarah Slattery about how um, she sort of took a position that she was really qualified for and made it work for her. Um, Roisin, what do you think? Like, this applies to, I think, women reaching for jobs um, beyond the coaching world. That strategy of advocating for yourself and knowing that you're, um, like, a very worthy person for the job, but trying to make it flexible for your family and your family life. 
Yeah, yeah, really resonates because a lot of women, um, you know, who are super qualified often think, oh, I, I can't do this job because I've just had another kid or I have a family. Um, and maybe because they can't fit in the nine to five, that the traditional nine to five or whatever their normal requirements are for a position. Um, but that rigid thinking kind of can exclude a lot of women who could be exactly the right person for the job. And like we heard from Sarah, it's not like she's not available for athletes. She's doing the work. She just needs the flexibility. And a lot of women are in the same boat. They want to work. They want to use their expertise, but they also need that flexibility. So I really think Sarah's a good model for that. And um, also, you know, having people that see her potential as a coach and saw that in her and and kind of seen it maybe even before she saw it and having those people to kind of advocate for her and say, hey, we really want you. We, we value you and we see your skill set. Um, I think that's so important as well. And for them to have that, again, flexible mindset that, you know, she has a lot on her plate, but she's a whole person and we respect that and we want, we still want her. Um, and what, look, they've only, they've only scored from that. That's an amazing position and, and she's done really well there. So that's great. Yeah. And I think something important that that story shows to other women is that this is common, I think, with women applying for jobs. If you feel like you don't perfectly fit the job and are 100% fitting into every um, qualification and schedule mm -hmm. and everything, mm -hmm. you just um, don't – you maybe just accept that rather than pushing back a little bit. And I think that just yeah. takes some confidence and some um, sort of um, encouragement to know that you have to um, – maybe fit the job around you more so than you just happen to be the perfect shape for the job. And a lot of the times if you have that conversation, um, you know, there may be some places that slam the door in your face, but I think Sarah is showing there's a lot of places that will work with you and your, mm -hmm. your expertise is so valuable that they're willing to work with you. You just almost have to create that um, better shape yourself. That's like an yeah. extra step that a lot of women have to take and I think are afraid to take. So Sarah showed that that paid off. And in fact, they support her and are behind her. Yeah, exactly. A lot of women disqualify themselves like before they even like put their put their hand in the ring. And you know, I think administrations who want to incre increase um, women coaches and um, uh, athletic director positions, etc. They have to take that on board. Not every woman obviously wants the same flexibility, but the women who do that could be the best people for the job. That hopefully more and more would have that open mindedness around hey, you don't have to do everything nine to five, that there's other, <laughs> there's other ways that women want to work. And that's true, like you said, across a lot of industries, I've part of a lot of like mom groups, mom working groups, business groups. And, you know, there's, there's a huge force of, of women who are well qualified, well skilled and ready to work. They just need that flexibility. So I think, um, yeah, that could be something that, you know, one of the solutions to these low rates is like, how can more um, administrations take on that kind of mindset? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I also, this segues into another great quote that we have from April Thomas at Mississippi State, because I think a lot of women are a little bit nervous about maybe feeling unqualified for a certain um, aspect of the job. And April faced that when she was coaching throws at 
Mississippi State, she is a thrower, knows how to throw every implement there is except javelin. Uh, javelin's really technical and unique, and she is currently the best, arguably the best javelin coach in the country right now. So she went from not knowing the event at all to sweeping the podium at NCAAs in that event. So I think that growth mindset is important, that and that confidence to step into the position knowing you can learn on the job and trusting, having the confidence to know that like, you will get better. You don't have to be perfect from the word go. Just get in the door, secure mm-hmm. the job, and then progress and grow from there. Yeah, right. So that's like the whole idea of start, start before you're ready. And then you apply your skills as an athlete, which are constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly, you know, trying to get better. And um, it seems like April was able to make that transition from athlete to coach and bring those strengths of a, as an athlete into the coaching arena and just kept growing and growing and growing. And she speaks a lot to that in the next section. Yeah, that's exactly what she did. Let's take a listen to what April has to say. I I think the main thing is I I just want people to understand, you know, that like this wasn't done overnight. You know, I feel like I put in my time. I'm still putting in my time. And no long as I got, you know, a breath in my body, I'm always going to be willing to learn to do what I have to do to better myself as a coach year by year. So I want people to look at it as, you know, not just a female coach or uh, African-American female coach, but just a coach that's willing to do any and everything that she can to get her athletes to compete at the highest level possible um, and accomplish things. Go on to be, if they have dreams to be a professional athlete, then, you know, get them to that next level. And yes, I've had a lot of success in, this, in the javelin. I am very thankful for that. But, you know, I also want, you know, people to understand it too. You know, I, I I'm very capable of coaching all the other events as well, too. You know, I've had successful hammer throwers, weight throwers, and uh, distance throwers and shot putters as well. So um, I don't just don't want to be labeled just as, you know, just a jab coach, but just a great coach, you know, all around. So and realize that, you know, like I said before, just, you know, I, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm doing what I can to, you know, better myself as a coach so I can get my kids better. So don't see the now, you know, just, you know, like I said, I'm starting my, my 13th year here. And I've had some ups and downs along the ways. I had some wins and losses, you know, good times and bad times. So, but you have to keep moving through those times, you know, good or bad, and just continue to do what you can to get better. And that's the main thing. So just keep keep looking to do the things I need to do to better my future. Um, but um. With the new kids that are about to come up, shall I say? Because like you said, like I said before, each generation is definitely different. So, you know, just prepare myself for that. So, just don't, you know, look at the now, if if anything. Just look, you know, what I've done up to this point, you know, and realize that I'm I'm, I'm doing the best that I I think I am. Some people may not feel they feel like probably I can do more. I know sometimes I think I could do more. I'm my own worst enemy. You know, I'm always you know beating myself up. You know, I'm the first to say, tell my kids, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. But one thing about it, I'm not going to stop until I find out. And here we also have Coach Diljeet Taylor from BYU talking about how she had to grow into her role as a coach and still continues to grow into the role. I think for me, it's just something that I've learned. And as, as coaches, we have to evolve and grow And I'm pretty sure that I probably started coaching with a fixed mindset, just like many other coaches do. And you have to 
find a way to evolve into having that growth mindset. We have a mental strength coach here, Dr. Manning, who talks a lot about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And, and I really try as a coach to, to keep that growth mindset as, as it's very important. And, and I think that I've learned a lot of things along the way and I probably have done things really wrong before I've done them right. And so, um, it's been 15 years of coaching now. And I think, yeah, I'm still evolving and growing and learning. Um, but I think we always have to have that mindset of being open to, to, to try to find ways to be better. And I still don't have it all figured out. I I really don't, but I think that I'm open to, to still learning. And I think, yeah, the journey and the process has been important. And I've realized that when we focus on that in, in past seasons, the success has come. And so now I'm, I, I've just made that, that's a staple. Like I won't ever change from that, but it's hard. It's hard when you're, you know, ranked really high and, and yeah, you get, you get sucked in, you get sucked back into that mindset. And so it's nice to take a step back and yeah. So that was uh, Dilji in April talking about how they grew into their positions as coaches. And the point of this, one of the major points of this whole um, episode was to also showcase um, how great of a job this is for women, how well-suited women are for the coaching position and why these women are really passionate about what they do. We really want to showcase why they love this job. Yeah, we've identified some of the obstacles they face and some of the criticisms and now we want to really let them showcase like what are the best parts of their job and we look forward to sharing that now. Here we have Amy Rudolph telling us what she loves about coaching. You know, it's something that's ever evolving and, you know, sometimes you get it right, right away with an athlete and other times it's, you know, it takes a little bit of time. And I think a lot of that is, you know, you, you're trying to forge these relationships where there's, it's built on trust and um, sometimes that happens really quickly and sometimes it doesn't. And you're just, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of an art and it's kind of the fun part of coaching is, you know, um, every day is a little bit different and you kind of you know, don't know what's going to come through that door, you know, every day. I think it's, um, one of the things I've really been working on is, you know, kind of trying to read body language and kind of knowing what's coming in before they even open their mouth, you know, like, I think that's a, that's something, you know, to, that I've been working on and just, you know, like I said, every, every day is a little bit different. And I think every day, um, Every day as an athlete, I tried to learn something to make myself better. And I think that's what you have to do as a coach, you know, and it's not to say that some days are just a complete, um, (laughs) complete chaos, but, um, you know, some days, you know, fun things really happen. Fun things happen with your athletes and you're like, wow, that was really special. And we're, we just went to another level in our coach athlete relationship or me and my team and I, we just went to another level. And so it's just, it's fun. It's fun. You know, as a coach, obviously you're, you're, you're trying to get results and, you know, kids have individual goals and then you have team goals in cross country. And, um, when you reach those goals, it's, it's so much fun. It's, um, it's, it's just really, really cool, you know? And, um, you know, and I think you're also when you, um, have kids that leave, you know, and go out, go out and, um, leave the program go out go out I mean it's just fun to see how much they've grown in the time that they've been there and so forth you know and um you're kind of helping you know shape them in a very um influential part of their life you know you, you kind of 
it's four years, but in a, on the, you know, in the whole grand scheme of things, it's, it's a small spec. So you're trying to do the best you can and, and just be a positive influence and um, hope that, hope that you kind of made a difference when they leave. And now we have April talking about what she loves most about her job as a coach. If, if that's what you want to do and you're passionate about that's what you want to do, go after it. You have mm-hmm. to. And I tell my kids every day, like when they, they ask, hey, you want to coach, they ask me stuff about coaching. I was like, if this is what you want to do, I'll, I'll do everything I can to help you and prepare you to get out into the coaching world. Um, but if you, you're getting into it because, you, hey, you think you're going to make a lot of money, don't get into it. You know, you have to do it because you're passionate about it. And this is, you know, that, hey, you you want to help the next generation come after you to, you know, be even better than you. That's after, at least and that's the main reason why I got into it, because, you know, I wanted to say, hey, OK, like, hey, I I probably may have ended my career a little bit sooner than I would like to. But, hey, that doesn't mean you have to. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to get you to that next point. In this clip, I asked Sarah Slattery, what was her favorite part of the coaching profession? And most of the kids that you're dealing with, like 99% of the kids I'm dealing with aren't going to go on to run professionally. So mm-hmm. I want them to be successful, like have a good experience, right. get the most out of their running, but get the most out of themselves Yeah. Um, as a student and as an athlete and mm-hmm. be able to be successful in their lives, learn like lessons from what they're doing on the track so that they can be successful in life later on. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And how to balance their personal lives with that. So I think that's the biggest thing they learn as yeah. a student athlete coming through. Um, what would be your favorite aspect of coaching? The relationships. Like yeah. it's just, <laughs> there's so many good kids like that you have on the team and you get to see them work so hard for something. And like, um, just as you were as an athlete and finally get to translate that into a performance and, and see them, um, see it come through is like so rewarding and exciting. And so, yeah, those relationships with the kids and seeing them perform well is, is so fun. And now we're hearing from Jiljeet Taylor at BYU. It's all about empowering women. And I'm grateful that I get to be in a place where I can tell these women, like, these are your dreams. We're going to stay true to them. It doesn't matter if you serve a mission. It doesn't matter if you get married. Like for Erica Burke, she had a baby. But still stay loyal to your dreams because this is important and you're important and your dreams are important. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm able to empower these women more here at BYU than I think I would be able to anywhere else. And the impact that I have here is is really appreciated by administration and and by Ed. I think I think everyone loves what we're doing and what we're building and and through building empowered women, like I said, we're having a ton of success, which is is just a win-win. And lastly, we will go back to Julie Cully, director of the program at Georgetown, um, and ask Julie why she finds her job so rewarding and how she would sell her job to other women who are interested in coaching. So here is what Julie had to say. I think that you've got to have really tough skin. Um, you know, Chris and I, my husband, we relate it to being the CEO of your own company. Um, and you're going to have to make decisions that, you know, aren't always in the, in favor of everyone you work with or the student athletes that you, you coach overall. Um, but if you're someone who loves interacting with people every day and doing everything you can to make a difference in other people's lives, 
Um, it's an absolutely incredible profession. Like I can't imagine waking up in the morning, being unmotivated to go to work. Like I, I get to go and, and hang out with 18 to 22 year olds and, and guide them in some of the most formative years of their life. Um, and, and, you know, lead a staff that touches every single one of those athletes every single day. Um, and it, it's through all the good times, like it's fun when the team is really successful. And obviously that's globally the goal. Um, but some of it's just day to day helping them with their life. And if you're someone who really loves to give and kind of eats and breathes that feeling, um, it, it's an incredible profession. I don't know that there's another profession that's quite like it. So it is, it is a, it is a good place to be. Um, and I think as a female, it's very fitting because it's a very nurturing job. Um, and that's kind of an innate characteristic of, of females is to nurture. Um, it doesn't mean that we're not going to push our student athletes and, and try to get the most of them competitively. Um, but it's also a, a, a job that's very, very fitting to a female. So I think the more women we have involved in it that get a taste of it at a young age, you know, maybe that, that number of, of individuals who end up leaving will get lower and lower. Um, but I think it has to come on both ends, right? Like we've got to really encourage women to step up and take these roles um, and, and see if it's something that fits their lifestyle. Um, but we also need to, from a global perspective and maybe from an administrative perspective, be doing more to support women in track and field to continue to stay track and field. That's been really great to hear from these uh, female coaches on their unique experiences and hear in their unique voices um, how they got into coaching, what they love about coaching, what some of the challenges are to getting women into NCAA coaching at a high level. And so I wanted to say thank you to all of our coaches for giving us their time. We interviewed Roshan and I interviewed all of them, and we did our best to chop up bits and pieces of the interview that we thought were powerful and collect them all in one place. Um, we, don't, we don't usually do our podcast like this, so that was new for us. Um, and Ro, do you have any reflections on this episode or anything you wanted to say um, in closing? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed all the interviews with the coaches and I'm really grateful for them taking the time to speak with us um, and getting a better insight into some of the challenges they face, like you said, and also some of the like real highlights of their career. And I hope other females will kind of listen in and kind of see that coaching could be a choice for them or could be an option for them. And hopefully we can do our part to raise that percentage a little bit higher at least. Yeah. So thanks again to the coaches and we'd love to hear what you guys think of this format and, you know, any insights you took away from the interviews um, let us know. Give us a shout. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one of the other questions we asked all these <clears throat> women was what resources they used or what resources they know about there that um, help them as coaches apart from their own personal mentors. And one thing they mentioned was um, the USTF CCA um, in 2018, three female coaches started the Female Coaches Mentorship Program. Um, that was started by Rhonda Riley at Duke, Angelina Ramos, who's now at University of Nevada at Las Vegas, um, and Janine Kustner. Um, and so you can check that out. They have a Facebook group called Passing the Baton, and at the coaching convention, the annual um, 
USTFCCA coaching convention, they have a women's only seminar. So thanks for that information, ladies. Um, and yeah, we hope to encourage and inspire you to check out the coaching field. And we're so glad that these women told us um, about the challenges and the rewards of this um, really amazing profession. Thanks for keeping track. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track. Major shout-outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!